can believe it, it's episode 98. Humble Vision, this is Heather Gold, coming to you from Salesforce offices. We want to thank them for the bandwidth. It's Thursday, March 29th, and I am in the same room, sitting next to Ken Marsh. Hello there. And Deb Schultz. Hello. And we are resolved to be in the same place as often as possible to increase the audio quality for you. A wonderful, I hate to use the phrase community because now it's now been destroyed by the internet. People we kind of want to know and don't feel like you're just a fan there to listen, but are there to teach us something together. How's that for a way to make something more wordy and convoluted? Which is sort of what Tumble Vision does, but why not? Tumble Vision, <laughs> what does it mean, tumbling? It's, uh, it's a phrase, tumbling, that um, it's an old Jewish, Yiddish job where people were hired to tumble or entertain at weddings and get people to dance. So... Tumbling is a useful word to describe the thing it is that many people are doing in a networked environment, which is to help people engage socially and actively with one another when there's no hierarchy. And that's what this show's about. It's a weekly style salon kind of podcast with some of the biggest thinkers and most interesting people who are finding new ways to make things work and connect and engage lots of people and not have flour in my laptop. In this new world, and um, that's why. All right. <laughs> and uh, so this week we've had a bit of a hiatus because we had some family issues among us. I don't know. Issues sounds terrible. Yes, well, I'm trying to be thinking- we were in counseling the three of us together. I- <laughs> yeah, you can imagine how it was full of Kevin talking and me and Deb listening. <laughs> Actively. Like that we, had, we had some relationship <laughs> issues to work out. No, just teasing. Well, I don't know if we're being, it's the public choice here to be open about, but we've had issues among in. us things to deal with of great importance that necessitated keeping the show off for a little bit, but we're thrilled to be back. Uh, so it's just the three of us tonight catching up in the last month with you guys, uh, Mike Hartfelt in Philly, Mike Vardy in BC, you know, we've got various listeners we get to know you guys or people who are with us live and record this show Thursday night, 6 o'clock PST. You can join us live at tumblevision.tv as part of the conversation. And then, you know, lots, a lot more people listen to the show after that. But uh, so what we're going to do this, this tonight is go over the last month of this space, which I guess you could, if you want to use popular phrases that we don't like anymore, community management social media, leadership, uh, marketing. Influence. Influence. These are all words we don't like, but essentially you could say that's what we know kind of a lot about. But we're just really trying to look at things through a a human-centered lens and looking inside out at things that way, Um, which sadly, in my opinion, none of the existing social networks do. Uh, And we're glad to be back. It's awesome. And it's great that you guys have been patient with some of the tech issues getting started here. So in the last month, we've had a bunch of stuff happen. We were at South by, at least Deb and I were at South by Southwest. We should talk about that because it was sort of insane. Um, A few other big announcements. And what are the big things in the last month that have really caught your eyes? For me, Neil Dash closing Expert Labs. I guess their foundation funding has stopped, but taking ThinkUp app, which is an open source project that Gina Trapani has developed for a while, and I think has a lot of women coding on, which is kind of awesome, uh, and trying to make that a complete focus for them as a product, something that I want to talk about. We're trying to get them on the show in the future so we can get into that. That's a recent announcement, and that's a project that's 
trying to do something across all social platforms. There's another so-called social media platform that's going to launch from some old Salesforce people that, and how much we can talk about it, John Thorson's project. But it was, it's related to social networks. I mean, I think that's fair enough in, in public to say. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, anything, Deb, that's really caught your eye and been important to you? Is, and, and if you want to talk about something you know, specific, you know, get into it with us. There, you know, it's almost the end of the Republican primaries. We've had the Mike Daisy debacle. We've had a few things yeah, happen. Yeah, we've had a, the Mike Daisy thing is interesting if you want to talk about media. I guess from a you know, software kind of company startup perspective, the two things that have been hot on my radar is I've been sort of been watching very interestingly, interested, as Pinterest has sort of taken mm. off. Um, and draw something. Yeah, and and draw something. And also, um, while at South By, which we can talk about, these sort of so you know social networks on a fly to see where your friends are, like what color tried to be, whether it be highlight or glancy or those things, and why I think they failed. Are failing and well, I think what's failing the highlights, the glancies, all those sort of on basically the fly. South by people tried to launch massive amounts of products. Well, should we just let's start with South? By yeah, Southwest. Sure. Is there anything before that that Kevin you want to make sure we hit, or anything that's really current in the last couple of days that we want to hit up top? Um, the, right the, I wanted to talk about the the sexism and tech yes. thing as well that happened last week, but we can yeah. we, we'll well, let's, do, let's do it in chronological order. In the epic Iliad that is sexism and tech. Right. But, the, the, but a relevant current moment of the latest of things has come yes. together. In the same way that the Daisy thing sort of has grouped with a couple of other things like the Coney uh, viral video where and, and the um, Ethan Zimmerman had a new piece today. Um, he's, I forget what episode, there's a really good... Ethan Zuckerman. Show we did <laughs> Ethan Zuckerman on... Not the guy from Florida. You said Zimmerman. No, Ethan <laughs> Zuckerman, Global Voices founder. Yeah. Uh, I think he's at MIT now, yes. and he published about something today about Daisy Coney and uh, a gay girl, woman in Damascus, a sort of fake uh, yeah, Saudi yeah, yeah. Arabia oh. logger, where it's just sort of linking them all. Oh, that's a good piece. We should find that link yeah. and, and put that, it that in was the, show the Amina thing from last year. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yet again, some white guy, and it's always a white guy. <laughs> Saying he did something or he is someone that he's, he's not, that he didn't do. Because they're under so much pressure, those white guys. Passing it off as journalism. You, you have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and British white guys, even more pressure. You have to uphold civilization. <laughs> Take up the white man's burden. Yeah. yeah. And if we can fit the original. it in Downton Abbey, because we're all obsessed with it. Right. It's just and it's, south it's, by. It's a nice reflection of the you know, economic change of the moment. Really, but uh, the, kind of the well, impending feeling of shit's about to change, and what the <laughs> fuck are we gonna do? Because this old system, yeah, we I'm, did well. In I'm it. losing my estate and all my servants, and my jewelry, and my jewelry. Actually, the truth matter is, Heather, our ancestors were the servants. <laughs> so I don't know why. <laughs> if we were lucky, if we were lucky, I don't know if we even got to there. That's what we I'm were saying. If we were lucky, <laughs> somewhere. Okay. South so South by? by Southwest, I believe that South by Southwest, as it goes South by Southwest, so goes the internet in this, se- in this sense. It gives you a reflection of what's happening to the web, mm-hmm. I think pretty clearly, and it has done that since the early years. And of course, that's why us old school nostalgic types pine for, you know, a certain pre-web time, not because the web itself could do more, I don't think it could, but because the obvious connect it was easier to see the way in which people were connecting with other people at a, at a more qualitative level faster. It's still, of course, happening through the web and apps all the time, 
but there's just a ton of noise. The signal to noise ratio is is weaker. And at this point, South by Southwest was over a hundred thousand people this year. It, I believe it was um, something odd is happening in our room. Oh. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> the seltzer Wait. bottle was screaming. Let me out. <laughs> Let me out. Hope and, you guys can hear that. And this is the year that it sort of became a general cultural moment. Like, basically, Amex was all over it. Like, large marketing brands came in and said, oh, this thing in this place, meaning South by Southwest Interactive specifically, not film, not music, but interactive, signifies a kind of trendiness and hipness that is like, like you know, like, remember when you heard about Diddy is going to the Hamptons and he's going to change the coolness and like those sorts of stories. It was that kind of a story. So you see all these large brands that don't have much to do with technology per se showing up, doing huge events. Amex bringing Jay Z in to perform for bunches of people that were I actually think Amex everywhere. Just that you wouldn't have seen them before. You know, they mm -hmm. they use technology and they use Foursquare actually incredibly well, but. It was a matter of using a technology as opposed to we make a technology right. or we're here to change technology or how could technology change the world. It was none of those things. It was I'm going to use a thing that's that's here. Well, I think the 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 difference is. I mean, a lot of those big brands showed up last year. I actually, in a weird way, think Amex has more right to be there than others. But I think your point is a really good one. Is um, more of them showed up this year that were not directly related because these are all where the young, hip, great marketing demographic is. And if we can get them to drink our soda or use our cars or wear our T-shirts, then they'll tell all their friends on Facebook and then all their Facebook friends will buy our stuff. You know, So it was really that. I mean, uh, a friend of all of ours, um, uh, Thor Muller, I bumped into him the first day at the show, and he, I think, summed it up really well when he said, that South by Southwest has become, um, it, you know, is for internet content what CES is for consumer devices. For those who don't know, the Consumer Electronics Show is this huge show in Las Vegas, which I don't know how many years ago, but probably 20 years ago was only industry people. And now, you know, tons of people show up to CES, and it's, it's, cr it's a crazy zoo. Yeah, and like I asked uh, this year on Twitter, has a successful product ever been launched at CES? And no one... To answer that and say yes, and I would say the same thing is now true. Right. The South by I I would be I would bet some money, hundred bucks. That's how much I'm comfortable losing right now. Mm -hmm. Me too. There will never be a successful application or product ever launched at South by Southwest again. And the truth mm -hmm. is, is the ones that are seen as quote unquote having launched at South by Southwest, I don't they really didn't. perceive as they kind of connected with more people. They they didn't say like let's wait and do right. this and launch it. I mean Twitter was up before it was South organic. Southwest Interactive. It was a moment where you could publicly see it in a slightly different way. And because we were all people were in one physical location and there was a, a deep enough penetration in the user base that was there, mm -hmm. you could see people's real life behavior change. I did a, a mm -hmm. panel conversation with Ev and Owen um, Thomas and a few people that year called Gossip, and it was I think the first time you could see people literally into a room because everyone had tweeted out that come in here because crazy yeah. shit's happening because Julia Allison was was kind of catcalling oh and I made her come up and sit in my lap like kind of got into like it's some pretty interesting stuff I think about that's kind of played itself out actually in this Daisy story and some other stories about what is news what is journalism you know how does stuff spread and why like like what's the point of it I mean the other thing is I mean two things you're talking about how big um, the show has gotten I also think uh, you know 
it's a reflection of what's happening with noise in the industry, and the industry's grown up. But when you right. take the noise that is and the noise coming, that you're using the web, right? And when you take that noise or the information overload that comes through your computer screens on a daily basis, or your laptop, or your you know smartphone, and you add a physical human being to that in one physical location, twenty thousand plus in a city that. It really that it really has outgrown. I mean, the conference has sort of outgrown from a physical standpoint. The infrastructure of Austin couldn't support this this number of people, and so it made it. You know, I I mean, it makes us sound like these you know early adopter syndrome folks to say we sort of bemoan a few years ago, but I think it's really because of what Heather you're talking about. It's missing that. It's so crowded, and it was so physically difficult to get around that you miss that that serendipitous bumping into people that you wanted to, and being able to just grab a spot and or overhear interesting conversations because there was just it was just a little too chaotic. It's also who's there, so but I, it's the combination. Part of what makes serendipitous connections with people interest possible is a kind of openness among enough people that they're likely to to really connect with each other if they right. don't obviously know each other. Right. And when you have a lot of people there on a mission of I'm wearing my company's T-shirt, exactly. I'm trying to push a, a my flyer into your hand and get you to log on to my app right now. There's a kind of especially goal. turned to Vegas, yeah. Yeah, it's a it goal orientation, yeah. and if there's enough people goal oriented, even if they're new to you, you won't get to know that. It's much less likely you'll get to know them because, and you're in an environment where so many people are doing that visibly that that reinforces the idea that you quote unquote should do that. Of course, all right. of them are canceling each other out, and I'm, right. in my opinion, are having anything effective happen. Exactly. Because of their all doing the same thing there. But it also just makes the serendipity harder, which was that was one of the most interesting mm -hmm. things to me. And I think I found that about web surfing. Have you guys found that it's just hard, it's less likely that you stumble upon stuff yes. as easily. You have to do more looking for interesting out of the way stuff. Yeah. And, I, and that's because, yeah, yes, there's some there's this is that's a really interesting segue, especially since I always think of South by as, like you said, the place where content, you know, and coding and creators were in whatever sense of the you know, the way you want to use that word. So I think of it very much as the it was the lone sort of content creator show around the web, as opposed to there were plenty of there've always been lots of internet industry conferences, but South by was the people creating stuff. And I don't mean coding; I mean literally, they you know, yeah, from no, a content it, perspective. It was it was sort of the the web designers yeah, home conference as well. Right. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that was that was very much anyone who was working building websites would, would go there for their annual dose of Zelda. It was yeah. an indie conference. It was based on music and film being very indie and the notion of independent yeah. contract. I used to be part of Webzine, Eddie Cadell, right. and Ryan Chanel so put together. Who, right. It was not just a notion of making content. It was a notion that anyone could make things right. different. Yes. That you could make quirky, weird stuff. But it was about making stuff. It was about making stuff and having a unique voice and yeah. who else had a unique voice and together. trying to do things differently. I remember when Judith uh, launched, what was it called? 20 by, not 20, that's Jen Beckman's project. No, it was one of the first things where you would send something in and she would send it to somebody else. She sort of oh, curated my, art. Yes, the art curation thing. Um, it was a while ago. But you, uh, you, that's a really good point. The two things together are important. It was the indie, first user-generated content thing I saw on the internet. Right. It's mm -hmm. indie and content. But the point is, for people who don't know, though, it, those are the two important things. Because like, people hear internet show. Like I had all these people I know who aren't in our industry hearing that South By was interactive, and they were like, okay, Deb, how is it different than all there these, were uh, you know. lots of conversations about non-obviously commercial things. Right. There was lots of early community and architectural mm -hmm. design stuff. There were politically related conversations around about the gender the and race and all right. that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a lot of human right. issue stuff. And and you know whether you're a um, there is a trajectory that all events go through. You know you could even take you know 
Ted was smaller, then it got bigger. That you, you know, these these things once they become popular, Burning Man, whatever, these sort of zeitgeist things, and they become popular and they get big, and everyone remembers when they were small. It'll be interesting to see what. Hopefully, maybe something will spin off of it, or maybe, or maybe the industry, um, you know, maybe the unconferences and bar camps are, you know, that happen constantly, or even the TEDx's are the answer to that, as opposed to everyone going to Austin once a year. Well, the, I mean, the, the value of it was, the Same for way. me, was the personification of your Twitter stream. You'd walk down the street and all the people you were talking to online mm -hmm. would suddenly be in, in the, you know, in the same space. Um, and, you know, even though half the people I would talk to would be people who were from San Francisco, the fact that they were actually there and open to the conversation was a key part of that. And if they're losing that, that's a problem. Um, and, you know, I, I was chatting to Salona today, um, Salona Bonewald, who has been on the show before, um, right. and is lives in Austin and has, has helped organize things there. And she said she couldn't actually get an event organized at, at South by this year because the, the battles over venues right. were so ridiculous that, that she couldn't do it. Talk shows there. I did shows there for like 11, 12 years since the beginning. I mean, I had my own issues in my own life this year that made the last couple of years difficult. But for me to do one next year, I would have to raise a bunch of money. Uh, it wouldn't be so easy because every major brand is there paying huge amounts to have, frankly, incredibly unnerdy gatherings. Yeah. It's not a place where you can hear anybody else at these parties. I'm not saying it's not fun to, you know, party music or right. go, you know, see Jay Z or all that stuff. But. It's a bit of a tell of how nerdy it is if there's no spaces to talk to each other. Well, here's an interesting point of view from someone in our chat room, um, Ben. Um, I don't know if the second ben part Benward. Benward. Ben oh, I was ben gonna. Word. I didn't know if the word part was his last name, so I didn't know if he wanted to be identified. But he was saying that last year was his first show, and he still finds it unique and interesting. So, so. Yeah, um, I'm not saying it's not unique. No, I just right. I just want to point out that it is. It, it you know when you've gone to something like we have for years, you see a progression. But I do think. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the chat room. I, I, I think that to me, with all the things that we're talking about, the, I just, the, the, the physical, I, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I can handle lots of people and bumping up against people. <laughs> it was just, it's not why I go to Austin, so I was a little disappointed in having to sort of wrestle my way through things. It's, it, it's not conducive, as, as you were saying, as I was saying to serendipity. Mm. It was also really interesting to see, you know, what are they calling themselves, the glances and the highlights? The, those those sort of social solo mo social location mobile mobile um, social networks. There were tons of them. There were first of all, there were a ton of them, and second of all, to me, the Explain irony what was they do. I am. Um, they are as opposed to um, if anyone here uses, listening uses Foursquare, where you go to a venue and you check in and you sort of raise your hand and say, "Here I am." These sites work on the fly in the sense they work off the GPS of your phone and just when you arrive someplace it will broadcast to the friends in your network that you're all in the same place. Sounds really helpful and useful, right? On on the surface. But we here at Tumble Vision who look at human behavior and human nature, um, the two things that I took away from it is one, um, you know, you don't just being in the same place at the same time with someone doesn't necessarily make it it it, it um, helpful. Um, Tumblers usually perform um, a great service in that regard, teaching you, say, introducing you to people. Uh, holding your phone up to someone else's phone and saying both of our phones are in the same place doesn't necessarily do it. Number one. And number two, it was the exact ridiculous wrong place to launch any of those devices because everybody was in the same place all the time within 20 feet of each other. <laughs> so, so it was ironically though they they all probably looked back at Twitter and said, "Ooh, this is the place to be." The difference with Twitter taking off at South by was that you had to sort of 
proactively be there. When you're all within 30 feet of each other, it, they weren't as helpful as you thought. Now maybe they'll get better and blah, 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 and there are lots of privacy issues and other stuff. So that was really interesting. And then when I was watching media cover South by after the fact, they seem to all jump on how Pinterest has taken off. And the thing that I find really interesting, which we talk about a lot on this show, is the need sort of, even within our hierarchical, non-influence-oriented you know, non world that we're living in today where everything's connected, people always need to find what's the next big thing. Like Pinterest is the biggest thing. You know, what's the story? So it's human nature. A classic, yeah. No, it's a classic journalism trope that... Yeah. Novelty or a hit, like that, the same way for politics, yeah. is that they need a kind of time base. It's yeah. a thing of the moment, so we're gonna we're gonna hook mm -hmm. our news on that. Yep, because we want to make a story. Yep, um, and that's the nature of how journalism has worked. I think that to yeah. me, that's yeah. why that has happened. But um, I mean, I think it'll become self-evident if any of those applications just become massively used and they'll, then they'll massively be good. used right. because people want to use them. Uh, I mean, Pinterest has obviously found a pretty strong. Audience, Kevin, what do you what do you think um, is Pinterest basically just the next place, uh, the next level of a more stream oriented Flickr? Um, I think the the difference is is it's visually organizing, so mm -hmm. it's a way that you can, um, in in a way that Tumblr already was for people who'd already found Tumblr, but it's it's very focused around making sense of something through mm -hmm. gathering photographs of it. Um, so you know it's. So for people who who like thinking about the world visually, it's 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 attractive from that point of view, um, which is why you know I'm I'm a very lexical person. So for me, it was like oh, didn't quite get this, but and you know that was I think that was part of its sort of invisibility to the to the the valley crowd is that um, we've all been very textually oriented and we, you know and, and engineers and nerd tend to be that way. So it it did it took took a while for for it to sort of find its its critical mass. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, it, it, Flickr had some of that. Um, Instagram has some of that. But the presumption for both of those that you were um, photographing stuff yourself, the, 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 the path through was, I saw this thing look. Um, whereas Pinterest it's a was... It's like delicious. It's, it's a bit more like it's a delicious. visual delicious. It's, it's yeah. a visual delicious. It's delicious for, for visual people. I, yeah. that's, I mean, to me, the thing that's interesting yes. about Pinterest is that to me it is Pinterest in a nutshell. It's... Delicious for the visual as opposed to the, the, the word-oriented. And no shock or surprise there that the biggest user base on Pinterest is women. And, the, and, and, it is, it is, and the reason I think it's taken off is because the smart founders, and they were women and got funding from women, you know, think visually and said, you know what? Delicious and all social bookmarking is great, but it does. But I think visually, and I want it for this kind of project. We, hmm. You know, design studios have been using pin boards, story storyboards for yes. years for ideas. I have one at home in my apartment. I'm very visual, and I pin up and rip out physical magazine papers all the time. So I love the fact that that they said, you know what? We need the thing that we do in our offline life all the time. The more interesting thing to me is that about six years ago, scrapbooking software came out all over the web, and some of it took off, but some of it, but a lot of it didn't. Mm. And if you compare Why? those two, I think because scrapbooking and people who scrapbook are enjoying, some things don't transfer to the digital web. They enjoy the physical nature of scrapbooking and having a physical object that they scrapbook. So if people had come around and said, oh, now you can do it on the web, isn't that great? They didn't ask the user base. 
the bottom line sort of questions of why do you scrapbook? Because we get together and we sit around with our friends physically and scrapbook. Well, we make a physical thing to give to and someone. And we make a physical thing to give to someone. Pinterest has taken off because it's pinboarding stuff. It's, it's also the technology has made it easy to in situ sort of, you know, um, bookmark things that you like, that you want to buy. That You know, it's the timing was perfect also with all these sites where you can buy stuff online that are also visual. And, um, and you know, I, I think that the lesson of that isn't, oh, my God, now we need 12 million different types of Pinterests. I think the lesson is that they saw a need that wasn't filled and filled it with a user base. And the surprise to Silicon Valley is that it's a user base that isn't geeks as much. It didn't start out with a huge user base of geeks. So I think that's the, to me, that's the interesting story and the exciting mm -hmm. part. And the fact that, you know what, in this day and age when your code isn't going to be that different than the next person's code, make your site look good. That's the other, user, you know, design is really important today. User experience is where it's at. Um, I don't know, uh, Myers is asking, he's a regular here yeah. at our show, um, is, is Pinterest, Flickr, Tumblr, all these just the same kind of thing sorted differently? Um, I think, I think Deb's gonna make an interesting point. I think the orientation that you start from is really the most critical thing. and. Tell me the truth. It's the most overlooked thing I hear in discussions of startups 100% of the All time. the time. I just met with a startup the other day where I was talking with them about different ways to socially engage people and how to, if, if you're going to re redesign around people meeting each other, what, how people connect in a, in a physical space. And that kind of thought process I don't see in most sites. I see a kind of business model or a presumption based on what people like to do already and then kind of push in its next direction as opposed to how does you see the world or how do you you know come to be together mm -hmm. I mean I think that for example when I think of Facebook because of how I encountered it which was at South by Southwest it seemed like a really nice solution to how to find people in a pretty crowded place where I had a lot of friends and I there are now so many of them it was hard to find them and it, it solved that problem. So to me, right. it was like, well, if I'm from having this experience of being around a lot of people I know, you know, physically, but I can't know exactly where they are, and I now live a life where I need to meet people on the fly because we just don't pl plan anything mm -hmm. anymore. <laughs> In that sense, it feels like a bit of a solution to that kind of a problem. In the same sense that Twitter felt like a bit of a solution to I don't have time to write this much, read this much. So I get that. In that sense, I think I think um, Myers looking at all those sites are real. Their their biggest distinction is their useful orientation at the beginning that initiates everything they do. They're they're organizations of a thing. In that sense, they'll do that. And the thing and the ones that really succeed and don't have to pivot ten times very often are the ones that you know that when you look back at the stories, it was really understanding what user need they were solving. I was looking at the, there's a startup festival in Montreal this summer, and I was looking and tweeting back and forth with Alistair Kroll, who's part of O'Reilly and, and is, um, and wrote a really great blog post on why they're doing this, this startup weekend, and it was glaring to me, and I you know, might go speak there as a result, but it was glaring to me that his blog post was about operating systems matter, microprocessors matter, networks matter, work on stuff that matters. You know, he really brought out some great stuff, work on stuff that matters. And I was like, what about people matter? Hmm. You know, startup folks and geeks very often when we all get together, I mean, present company excluded, because we're the ones harping on people all the time, forget the people part too often. Well, here's the thing. The experience of people tends to be 
how can I you I get people or you get people to come do this thing I want you to do? Right. It's essentially a manipulative decision. But it's a normal I, sometimes it's unintentional. Aware. With startups, it's, I think it can it's be, not conscious. It's not conscious, but it's manipulative. Right. right, it's not conscious. I mean, the notion big, is I have a thing. How am I going to get my thing? Instead of going. I have you? a thing. Who are you? What do you need? I would say don't even have a thing. How about... Well, so you have to start with it. I mean, everyone has to start with a thing. Start with a person. Why start with a thing? Well, you are starting with a person, but then you're starting with solving a person's need. I well, mean, this, this is the, this is your social objects things. Like, right. What is it's the a social what is, object. What is right. the we're object that, that we're going to be social around yeah. on this site? And that. It doesn't even have to be a social site, though. It could be, you know, designers, industrial designers, sure. other... Forms of, you know, web designers. It's interesting to me that the, the word design is very popular now in the business world these days because people, designers have to focus on the pers- the user first. It used to be that web people had to focus on the user first, but I think we've forgotten that. You know, a good designer says, I want to design a better box. And in order to do that, a really good designer has to do a bunch of interviews with users and how do you use the box? What do you want to use the box for? And right. there's always that balance. If you t- if you jump into design communities, there's always that balance. How much should you listen to users and how much shouldn't you? Because the yes. design community tends to over-listen to the users and not be innovative enough sometimes, right? And other community, well, that's well, the, yeah, that's the conversation the that goes on in design communities. Focus group to death problem. Right. That's the, that's the conversation. It's interesting to me that in the design world, the conversation and the argument that often goes back and forth is we're listening to our users too much, how to, you know, are, are, are the people too much, how are we going to innovate if we just give them what they want? And other businesses sometimes don't even listen to the people at all. <laughs> it's funny. But it's both extremes, right? So, I mean, to me, the takeaway about South By is that it just, for me, it's a useful look at what's going on online and where is it, it's, you know, as a, as a ecosystem or an environment and I mean so Kevin is a serious you weren't there you were watching it from afar but as a mm. serious like scientific thinker and coder how do you um, how do you feel about the you know those kinds of environments reflecting a web where tons more people who know nothing about coding are, are actually building things or, or, or swaying where attention's going well, that's—I mean—that's part of the you know, the attraction and the value of, of what's going on now is that, um, you know, the reason you used to focus group to death was because the cost of launching anything was so high, you had to be fairly sure there was something there to begin with. Um, now you can build something fairly quickly, throw something up, um, propagate it through social networks, through um, through the through the web, see if it see if it gets anywhere, try again, keep trying and iterate. You know, that's that's. That is so much more available now that um, people can, you know, try out more, try out whimsical things. Whereas, you know, the the indie web of your, the, the sort of start of the the, the Southwest Southwest you're, you're remembering, um, you had to be very committed and technically savvy and have a, a broad range of skills to get anything working at all. But the thing, it's right. So, so how does it feel that you don't need that now? Because it's a different kind of person that's there, and yeah. what was, what coincided with that kind of person, or happened to for whatever reason, was an interest, not just in building websites, in changing uh, and upending hierarchy. It was an interest in mm. in new opportunity and social, yes. massive social and business and cultural change. Like that was a big part of what was driving people. Whereas now it's just more like, oh, this works, and I want you to have more of it. Or, or here's a, here's a pattern that I've seen and I'm ex- I want to follow. Yeah, now that's I mean, I mean that's sort of. 
Well, that, that sort of brings me to the, the sexism in tech thing. Um, well, I love how Kevin's one who can't wait to talk about sexism. <laughs> I know. That, you know, it's awesome. Well, thank you. Because um, that was... The, the, you know, the fascinating thing for me was watching this was that um, the people were being called on it in public and then being shot down in flames and, and having to back off and, and, and do it. You know. So that was, the, that was the things like, oh, it, it, it would remind... It, it was a, I called it a sober moment because it was, it was suddenly like... Oh right, people understand this and get this, and I think there there had been this pattern of, you know, the programming thing, the, the the social network movie, this whole sort of macho startup bullshit culture um, that, that that these guys are clearly bought into, and were you know suddenly broadcast that in its in its crudest form, and the net sort of stood up and swatted them um, until they disappeared, and that was for me that was encouraging. That was like oh, you know, you can turn turn some of this stuff around. Oh, I mean, that's why I've been such a big believer in public publicness, you know, yeah. for mm-hmm. so long. And, and why, you know, it's a ramification of what I was trying to say. And, uh, you know, totally gay for the web. My talks about social media is coming out uh, and, and all this stuff. Because when things are seen and enough other people see them, it is harder when you get that kind of witnessing for the people who are bullies to get away with it. Right. Yeah. It's essentially kind of bullying. Yeah, and I think... Um, not to make you blush, but I think it's really important that folks like yourself and others who feel, um, I don't want to use the courage word, but who have that voice use it, right? Because right. not everyone can. Um, not well, everyone Sh- can Shanley be, not, Kane, ev- not everyone can be that. Who that, was, what, you know. what Kevin was talking about, uh, her sort of in- interaction with the founders of Geek List, there are a couple of the things that came out this week. Programmer was talked about, I forget which conferences decided to pimp on their site that you should come to the conference because women will get you a beer. But Shanley was willing to sort of mm. call these guys as they were treating her incredibly in an incredibly sexist way as doing that. And she's willing to name it. And I think it's easier because it's public to do that. I think it's easier mm-hmm. to feel safe. And they weren't in this exchange adding her, you know, seeing essentially her, her employer and sort of threatening her in a way like, oh, I'm never going to interview you again for a job. You know, those yeah. kinds of comments. So she said, oh, here's what, what that is. And essentially, what they're trying to push her to do, if you look at this exchange, and um, we'll put the link up to the storefly that Charles Arthur put together, um, they tried to push her back into private space. They were hoping she'd go back into private space. Yes, right. and so sexual harassment is essentially. I was, um, which is, I was on Yale Sexual Harassment Grievance Board. I spent a lot of years. This is one of the reasons I went to law school. I'm kind of obsessed with this, and eventually pushed me into being a performer the way that. It, I am mm-hmm. because I think there's essentially it's a it's a transformational thing at times to be public. It isn't always safe. Data Void has all kinds of yeah. blogging about how a lot of people don't have the privilege of being able to do this. But I, you know, my argument with Dana has always been that's true a lot of the time. But also the only way it will change is for some people to be public and to have right. that kind of witnessing. I don't see any other way will transform the public space. Um, everyone's maybe not always up for being part of that challenge, but it's pretty key. And it's very exciting. We've seen it with Susan G. Komen. We've seen it with lots of other things where the, the at least the Twitter and, and Facebook people on these mediums have just kind of gone after someone, Rush Limbaugh, who seems to have been unfair and sexist. I mean, Rush Limbaugh's been sexist professionally for decades. <laughs> it's been pretty amazing to have a moment all where of all of a sudden, sudden people yeah. are like, oh, guess what? Like, you know what? That's not cool. And I feel like it's... Because this medium allows a much larger number of people to comment at much lar- less risk and effort to themselves. Right. I mean, but it's, it's also, 
Yeah, it takes someone to stand up. The, the other, the other thing, you know, I I got back from the um, uh, the geek list thing was um, talking to to some of the um, female tech journalists was they were saying, yeah, I'm really glad someone stood up for this. I really don't want to write this story again um, because if I do, I will just spend the next three days fighting off bullshit in my comments on on on, on my post. Um, so I'm really glad Charles Arthur wrote it up for the Guardian. So that you know, I'm really glad a guy's writing about it for a change, which I thought was was an interesting take on it because so many of the women in tech have spent so many years dealing with this bullshit that they're like, okay, yeah, it happens. Um, I'm glad people are standing up for it, but I want to focus on my job. And I think that was you know, um, I think Shanley had that you know after after a day of this, she was like, okay, I'm going back to work now, goodbye, and which which was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, um, any other um, comments here? Anybody want to get into this? Any? What makes this? Uh, Myers you is still on South by. We wanted to bring in Ethan Zuckerman and Mike Daisy and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I did a video to HeatherGold.com. Uh, I think it's a top post about Mike Daisy told the truth and lying to this American life. He's a solo performer I know a little bit. Uh, he got in touch with me when his first show doing Time at Amazon was playing at Berkeley Rep in my solo show. Uh, I look like an egg, but identifies the cook he was playing in San Francisco. And he's the only other solo performer I know who doesn't lock his script. Uh, for some hmm. of the same reasons I don't, and for some different reasons. So I was very invested. I mean, I've known him for a while, and I've tried to learn things from him. Um, because he's become extremely successful and made a lot of interesting work. Um, and a lot of work that for me isn't as interesting. And I actually was less interested in the agony next to Steve Steve Jobs as much as I'm an Apple freak. Uh, mm -hmm. Because it's his first show where he doesn't really talk about his own. I mean, he talks about his own experience, but his own experience was set up for the show. It was I went to go investigate something and I'm going to tell a story about it. Uh, in this case, it was to go to the Foxconn uh, factory in China where there are a lot of uh, labor abuses you know that have been generally reported where Apple makes all of our shiny toys mm. and because you know Mike is as big a geek as anybody and he loved Apple and he kind of I think wanted to face that stuff um, and Michael you're saying you don't know why I didn't play the performance artist card I think Michael did I think Mike Daisy did essentially say I mean this has been such this was enormous in the in the general press I don't know if everybody's read it but to oh, sum up his piece was excerpted on This American Life, which is the top documentary storytelling show on the radio. It's amazing. It, w it was, at the time, the highest downloaded uh, show they ever put on This American Life. It's an excerpt from his solo show, which is The Public, which is, like, the greatest place. You know, I, it's a goal for me to have a show at The Public someday in New York. And then, not long after, just the other week, Ira Glass said they had to retract the show. And then that show about the retraction became the uh, the most downloaded show <laughs> of course. It is an incredible, incredible uh, piece of, of storytelling that, that I highly recommend listening to this radio show. It's kind of fascinating. Now, I do know from following this story pretty closely, Mike's posts, Mike said it was a four-hour conversation with Ira, so you don't hear four hours, obviously, but they left some of the pauses in. 
which are the things that are most some of the most talked about. Oh, I think Michael Sippy just excerpted mm-hmm. the pauses and Kaki posted them. <laughs> They're oh, incredibly very powerful. So, um, yeah, he's a Spalding Gray influence. I mean, most storytellers on stage are Spalding Gray influence. My stuff's a little more radical, different, radically different in form, and I'm web influenced. I mean, part of how I came to this whole tumble conversation was because I started trying to make my live shows be more like the web and so I started involving everyone in the room in them Mike does not I mean in theater everyone's always involved in on some level because they're there but I mean actively where they're talking to and I'm trying to draw them out anyway Mike lied to Ira Glass which is kind of an amazing thing because Ira Glass I mean to his face and and if you listen to the the redaction episode you'll listen to him lie some more I think really or just be very uncomfortable about it he eventually admits it's like yeah I did I mean and so that that's about as I mean I'm not being as concise as I'd like to be <laughs> but there's been a tremendous amount of writing about it especially because journalists love to write about journalism yes it's the thing they write the most about <laughs> and so aside from politics politics yeah. more it's a thing I, I no, said they, after comes politics it's, right? it's about themselves yeah, right? yeah and course. so what's happening to us and so they, you know, this stuff didn't didn't fact check out. And then Mike said, you know, I regret that I put my show on your journalistic program, mm-hmm. and that's my big regret. And so there's been tons of blogging and posting, almost all of it saying either here's all these journalistic reasons why this line's horrible and terrible, or other artists and other people saying storytelling's yeah. important. Uh, you always lie in selling stories. My video is sort of saying it's absurd to say these things can't be together like you know my point of view in this whole thing is bad shit's happening in Chinese labor situations and Mike Daisy lied to Ira Glass because you can listen to the thing and it's pretty um, basic that he lied to him and you do can you know do all kinds of things to make a story work creatively all those mm. things are true together and at the same time and I don't know what it leaves you with other than your relationship with somebody with a quote-unquote audience if you have that do they want to know if you act as though I was there and I saw this thing and they find out that is not true and you made up the guy with the hand that's like a hook and you made up that there was a 12 year old girl there and there wasn't and you made up that the idea that there's just tons of 12 year old girls working in this in this factory everywhere and you're just running into them constantly that that's a kind of breaking of your relationship and right. and um, the, the the code that is the truth of journalism. I mean, or the truth of art. I mean, the, the truth, truth of art, of art have right. to be factually true. I mean, he, he lied mm. about his, I, you know, I think factiness. I'm a fan of factiness in this. Right, but, but, he, but he did present it as, as truth. As truth. That's you know, the it, problem. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't as well, told to. Isn't that it the was. problem? Here's the tricky thing. I mean, here's why I think it's both and. Artists, any artist on a stage talking to you is going to tell you, especially if you do personal storytelling, that I'm here to go into truth. And the truth isn't about literally having the facts right. And that's going to make a journalist's hair stand on it. So it's an abstracted conversation. Yes. That is true. But But as a specific conversation about exactly what happened in this situation, he told his producer that he didn't know where his translator was. He told his producer the translator had a different name than she actually had. He told her that he was at right. WinTech when he wasn't at WinTech. Like he told her, he had, and he told the producer this after the so producer the facts said were out to him, there. 
we recognize that theater storytelling is different than journalism, but we need to meet the level of journalistic fact-checking, word for word. This is what they told him, and they had emails. And then he right. said, in response to that, mislead, intentionally misleading things, that, to me, is the crux of what is wrong. But I'm all, usually but, but also, somebody in all these abstract situations who focuses on the specific thing. Like, I don't know, is pornography bad? Is, can you, you know, have sex for me? I don't know, but how do you uphold a physical contract? That's, I mean, I'm usually more interested in the grounded actuality because it's much harder and messier there than it is in these nice abstract things to say here's yeah. what journalism is or here's right. what hide behind truth a truth is no but, but the thing is his playbook said non-fiction and journalism in the yes. same as well so he was he, he went on dozens he, he, and dozens and dozens of television journalism pro- now yeah. those same programs have uh you know what's what's the blonde which laura one ingram? Is that laura ingram yeah. you know people like laura ingram who clearly are paid to lie about stuff all day long as are yeah. You know, Mitt Romney, we have this expectation of politicians, like, like Romney my, and Obama, that they lie to us. We have different standards of how much we expect them to lie to us. Right. Uh, you know, so that on some level people say, well, if Mike Daisy can't go on, why, then why do you have, you know, Geraldo Rivera and these other people who are basically right. lying? But again, I think that's a kind of deflection to the general situation. I'd say that's an interesting general conversation. Obviously, one's having them because they're interesting. In this specific case, he's not... You know, telling it helped his cause. Obviously, he became a massive media figure. I mean, this is a guy yes. who does theater that very few people see. When you go on This American Life and eight hundred thousand people download your piece, you're never going to get eight hundred thousand people to see your play unless your course line you run for twelve years. Like it's just you don't get those kinds of numbers in theater, and so it's been in his interest. And I can't tell you what was intentional from him and what wasn't. But I, the larger mm. issue on the web that is interesting to me in terms of what's non-hierarchical and what's tumbled is to watch the massive response, the massive amount of blogging and tweeting and Facebooking about this kind of thing, and the way in which people want to know. It's a mixture of do I know that this thing actually happened? What do I care about? What makes me care? And who do I listen to and why? Those, to me, are the more fun foundational mm-hmm. things that we're seeing kind of explored and, and mostly I saw a lot of journalists be incredibly self-righteous and angry yes but, but think, and, and true and right I mean yeah. in a sense of accurate I don't know how relational but, but you know how much how much of their stories stand up too because the the journalistic practice of deciding the line and winning people till you get the line is is you know it's in some ways as mendacious it's like okay I need to stand up this story who do I ring that will stand up this story for me to oh, me the, Rob Endell, you know um but there's also the um, I think the other thing that's different here is that there is a presumption that it can be fact-checked by other people now. Um, and so the, the the other thing that was sort of shocked people was that yeah. um, they assume that you can go and check stuff. You know, It was a new moment. That, and there was a kind of an, sort of implicit, oh, I'm just going to go to China for five days, I'm going to tell this story, and I'm just never going to occur to me that there are people in China who are going to know what you're saying and are going to find out and let you know. Right. That's a good and, point. And in some Which ways, is similar to the Shanley Kane sexism. Like, okay, she says something about Geek List, the guys react to her, but it doesn't occur to them that Other a people ton of people are watching them right. do that and, and, and able to see And you Charles Arthur can publish the thing in The Guardian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so but then there's a question of, when Charles Arthur publishes it in The Guardian, Authority, get another white guy, 
It matters because why? Where does his authority come from? Well, his, Where does Mike Daisy's authority come from? Where does whoever's tweeting you know, it, authority it, come it, from? But the authority he came from, he was he was telling the story. He was telling you know, his, his storytelling He's again. He's on NPR. He was telling the, his authority. Well, no, right? in, the, in the, the Charles Arthur case, he, oh, he, he told this story. You know, it was a bunch of tweets going back and forth. It wasn't very you know coherent. I was sitting there watching it go back and forth. I was seeing some fraction of it. Right. But I wasn't necessarily following everyone involved. And he had the same issues. But he went back and sat down and picked it out. Put them together, wrote a narrative around it, um, so that there was a story that up the, you know, the next morning mm-hmm. people could read that story. Yeah, I love. I mean, you know, that's sort of an untold tunnel skill also that we don't talk about. You know, often yes. is that people lump everything. My new word that I'm starting to get bristle the hairs at the back of my neck bristling on it has to do with curating. Mm. <laughs> Everything's curated on the web. Um, things, but but what 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 he did. Or Charles, it really spent time. Well, it was narrated as well as curated. And that's what I'm saying. But people lump that all together. They would, you know, yes. those not looking would say someone just curated. And today, people are using the word curated. I think real curators in the art world would probably get, start getting pissed. That doesn't mean you take an algorithm and just paste, cut and paste a bunch of links together. Curating, you know, it requires a certain amount of editorialization like it or not truth or fiction right I mean it's a point of view I think it's consistency what people come to expect from you what Mm -hmm. they believe it means I mean for me I saw this piece as but I'm somebody who's paying attention to Mike Daisy's work from the get go which is not many people as many people um I mean, to me, it was a departure from, like, the thing that I'm, uh, that I teach in these workshops and that I find, the thing that is the most socially engaging for people is authentic. And then people say, well, what is authentic? You're going to come up with this. Like, Mike can make, tell an emotional, engaging story, and he's mm-hmm. going to say, these girls were, I saw these girls 12 years old, three years, 13 years old. Yeah. Uh, three went the other direction. It's more dramatic. You know, go down to the younger age. Like, so he saw this, and so there's this kind mm-hmm. of power of his, but it's also how he's vocally delivering. It has mm-hmm. a lot to do with it. And for me, That's emotion. to tell you the truth, because it's not the most politic thing for me to say, I found uh, very inauthentic. I found it theatrically inauthentic, like on a pure performance yeah, yeah, yeah. level. It was very. And and so I was less interested. Um, I like a truly uncomfortable moment. <laughs> I'm right. a little weird there as a performance artist. I want it to be really hard, not performatively hard. Because I'm mm, interested. Real, wait, say that. That's a really I'm important phrase. Yeah. Part of my goal and the kind of work I'm playing with, which is part of why I guess it sometimes is called performance art and not traditionally theater, but Mike is playing with the same space. He wants to go into a real world, not just a representation of a world. Theater's traditionally been a story about right. something. As opposed right. to performance. Performance is we're going to do something now. And so when I did a show where we're making cookies, we're making the cookies. And if you're going to come out and I get 20 people to come out and show, you're doing a thing right now. Right. You're not telling me a story about 20 years ago when you came out, which I'm using to get you to do this thing now. So does it require in the moment um, to be to authentic? Me, I think so and I think when someone sounds emotional it can be uh, easily taken as authentic because so many people are unused to being publicly emotional because we're so because we're so um, uh, numb we're in the moment of I mean this is sort of the with project of what I've been writing about I think we're in a moment of massive cultural change that's about emotion right and about emotional uh, development and being and most of the economic changes are driven by this because most people, the most economic power have been those have been most emotionally shut down, and that's going to have to invert. Because what is engaging is what's 
obviously more emotional, but you can have manipulativeness emotionally for sure. And most actors know that and they learn that that's what they can do. And that's why when you learn how to do that stuff, you have a lot of power in your hand. But for me, when I look at anybody who's speaking with a self, uh, a very intense kind of self-referentialness, in, I don't know if that's such a word, yeah. in, in emotionally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. be it uh, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins, Gary V, Mike Daisy, okay. Um, Mike's the best storyteller by far of all those people. And I'm not saying he hasn't been authentic at stage. He has been tons of times. I've seen a bunch of his shows. But when... Um, when it's crafted. When you're constantly pointing to everybody to tell them the thing that you just told them. Did you notice the thing I did? I did this thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah not totally. Not neurotic and Jewy to me. But yeah. it's, <laughs> it's very neurotic but and Jewy. It's, uh, but I immediately don't believe it. But, but also, but I, but don't, but, well, you have a really, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of like an emotional radar on this stuff. Well, this is what I yeah, put on my phone. Right. right. Um, I think that the world at large, thanks we're to the learning. web and stuff, we're just starting, I mean, you know, to, to pick up on that. On and mass. you have so many people. Part of what's amazing about this story the, is, is to see so many reads. And so right. many people will read it differently. Part of why I was well, so obsessed with Sarah Palin, and anyone who's been listening to me in these shows knows I like to talk to her, but this is the exact reason why I'm obsessed with her, okay? Mike Dizzy didn't do anything Sarah Palin didn't do. What did he do? Right. He told you a story. He told a story of people that's based on some things that are emotionally completely true and physically factually and, true and for the, a lot of and people. It's the, it's the then what did he do when he was challenged fashion. on it? He doubled down, oh, and he was outraged because... People wanted to point away from the important issue at hand by blaming him, right? Well, on the well, right. but both those things are true. There is an important issue. It's mm-hmm. horrible what's going in China, and he did well, this thing. So to those me, things both happened. To me, the really interesting part you just reminded me when you, we first started talking about this that's interesting, and we may have to move on from this soon, um, is the and part. Let, sorry to clap straight into the microphone, but the the point that. We're living through a time of all this sort of emotional upheaval that you're talking about, and the result of this emotional upheaval is people have to learn how to live in the gray areas. And as we're living through this emotional upheaval, we're finding people going into their corners because it's too uncomfortable for them. You know what I mean? So, um, so, so that's why you get such polarization, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, journalism, storytelling. Like, I think we're wrestling with these definitions because we're wrestling with this new world order kind of stuff, and people don't like gray. So, Heather, you know, your video talks about the and, right? Yeah. It's the people, people talk, and is uncomfortable. You have to be very, un, very evolved to, to the, live in and. The point of an artist or Daisy or any No, I'm just, I'm just you know, saying, taking it to that. Saying you know, that, uh, you know, I am telling truth is because they want to live in the discomfort. They can handle that there's lots of subjective experiences. That's right. coming from the point of view of assuming there are 20 people in the story, there are 20 experiences, and they're all true. So if they're all right, true but on the that readers level, or consumers of this is what I'm talking about. I mean, the I'm reason just saying, we get the as an artist, if right. you've already been living in that realm where that's the point of you going, look, we have a different kind of mm-hmm. truth where we like I'm, I'm like richer, like a more layered understanding right. of truth because I know there's all this subjective emotional experience happening on top of everything else. Which is what if you want to look at my Vimeo talk, uh, public and private, where I talk about us all being performance artists. So, so what Daisy's doing yeah. is what we're all going to have to do, or what right. I've been doing, right? It's just leading, like, hey, how am I going to handle these feelings? How am I going to handle that lots of people have these true experiences? And then how do you deal with it? And many people, it seems like journalists, like to go to these well, binary right. places. Of, and, and they're factually right in this case. He 
he did, and, he, and many people don't even talk about the fact he just lied to Ira. To me, how about that? He just completely lied to this guy right. who said to him, I know you have to do this thing. And he goes, yeah, you know, in the face of that, I'm going to still tell you the wrong thing. There's a question, do I understand your situation and the position you're in? What's so powerful about the experience with Ira is Ira's telling him, I understand your position. I understand what it is to be an artist on stage. And even given that, I need to do this other thing. So when you've communicated that, you're already saying there's multiple truths. He gets that level of which. In that, in the face of that, to ignore that, you're breaking a relational thing, right? Like, I don't know that much about what will happen, because probably know Daisy will become a huge, huge, huge star. I mean, he's incredibly famous now. But I'm sure he will never appear in This American Life again. There's right. no way right. they'll have him there. Why? Because of that conversation and what happened in there. And, that, and, that, and that's... This that's, is someone saying, I understand how you might be in the world differently, but you know what? I need this thing. Mm-hmm. And in the face of that, the other person going, I'm still lying to you. And then the person, the, the first person catching right. you in that, that relational contract's broken, at least between those two parties. Right. And right. that, to me, is the only thing we're going to be stuck with. And part of what I'm fascinated with why I refer back to Sarah Palin is these crowdsourced fact-checking things. Part of what's amazing about the Sarah Palin blogs, if you were reading them about the, the kid, was the baby hers, blah, 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 is watching enormous numbers of people try to figure out what really happened and what didn't really happen together, in this case because the mainstream media wouldn't go into the story or wouldn't research it. So they were trying to figure out when did this happened, what do we have access to, how do we figure this out, and most of the people in those blogs are people who grew up in around narcissists who are like, this person's narcissistic, they'll compulsively lie, they'll be incredibly charismatic. How do I, I see through this because I grew up around this. Right. Can you tell what this is? Mm-hmm. And I think that is going to be a massive cultural issue because we have an whole economy based on narcissism, right? I mean, the thing about Steve Jobs, the irony of this being agony next to see Steve Jobs is on some level Daisy's doing what Steve Jobs did. But an antenna gate. And I just listened to, you know, I can't remember the biography who wrote it of Jobs, but he talks about how his response to antenna gate is he, he makes a statement about all, no smartphone, no smartphone works perfectly, right? First set the frame as a general issue. Sure. Paul, journalism needs facts, right? Like, let's go to some general thing. And then I'm going to take this particular situation. You won't even know the specifics of it anymore because we're just going to set up a generalized frame and I'm going to take a place mm-hmm. within it. Now, for everything Jobs said that deflected to help their share price, he also then set a policy that said, we're going to place all your phones, right? He didn't say, I'm going to like change the play for all of you. Wow, yeah. I don't right. think he can. It's a bit of a different animal. But, but that way of dealing with stuff, how, how long can that be perpetuated? Even the way Jobs ran Apple, given who he was, would that be still possible Five years from now, ten years from now, when you have this many people with this much access to this much information and willingness to speak up to each other and saying, yeah, but like everything Jobs did, if we'd known all along, if the public had known all along, all the berating, all the cruelty, all the details of the things he said to people, in addition to all the great things he accomplished, would they have responded the same way to him speaking? When people can see everything you say, founders of Geeklist, not just the great stuff you built with your company, but the shitty stuff you say to Shanley Kane. Do they believe the next thing you say Right. the next time? And and this is a kind of conscious living. People are like, how, oh, my social media problem is how do I have this part of my identity here and that part of my identity there? That's presuming you want to continue to live, or ha- we have to continue to lead a life of segmentation. And I see no option around this, at least for me, as integrating as a person, but that is just deep personal internal work, which is not 
well, terribly technological and difficult. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just you. I mean, the people, I think, who thrive in this new environment and the web and social media and social web and computer software and all this stuff are people who feel more comfortable being more integrated. It's it's why I don't usually think about when I tweet, in, when I'm in, you know, I deal with big corporations all the time. I don't have to think about, should I tweet this out or not? I, I assume that people will take who I am holistically and one line won't, <laughs> won't I don't have to segment my identity and who I am online that I'm you know I, you know we're lucky there are people who need to for various reasons but I think you know in a connected world those who are connected themselves thrive right and those who are integrated in themselves will thrive in easier ways that's why businesses have more trouble and those well, who are you binary will and you will, right because entire economies are agreements too like there's a lot of money that was spent, for example, South by Southwest by marketing departments who believe for their own needs and for their employers' needs that that's a good thing to do. Now, we can sit here and say it's not going to accomplish anything for them, but their collective agreement, it's doing something. So the bunch of money is spent, that's a real economy. That's not a pretend economy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. if you're more integrated, you will also not be able to work in other kinds of systems that are based on duplicity. It's going to be very hard. It is. It's hard. That's why in an economic that's system people, of duplicity. That's what I'm saying. That's why... You, you can thrive in a connected, you know, sort of this this non, non-duplicitous mm-hmm. world where you're okay being transparent and out there, but you find it really hard when you go to your day job sometimes right now, certain people. That's what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, right. we haven't mentioned, but we should, the fa- Facebook actually standing up for people. That's right. We should mention that. And saying that they won't, um, and going to Congress about some employers requiring people's pass- Facebook passwords to search on them before they consider hiring them. Which was... Apparently, another story without evidence. Oh, really? It hasn't happened. No, I think it's. Well, it may have happened, but the the actual the original story was they were somebody was asking, "What would you feel if there wasn't? They didn't actually have a documented case." Now, I'm I'm sure it has happened. I I can totally you know. I only totally say see people doing that. On my trip from South by, I spent some time with an old Apple colleague, Max Strucker, who I can't remember the name of his business, that does nothing but try to do third party um, employee like pre-checks that are fair compliant um, and he I mean I'd like to have him on a future show it's pretty interesting um, he's kind of positing in this kind of world that employers can't legally do these searches in any way and stay within the confines of employment law of not learning about people's marital status sexual orientation race all that hmm. kind of stuff so disability so it's better to have this kind of third party check for the terrible things that you have to check for right. like, and they do that post post offer as well so they, they will do a and then right. blank out and not let the employer see the rest of the stuff they shouldn't be able to see and just see the, like, hey, this guy's, you know, child molester, but, you know, ooh, you just hired him to work at the Y. <laughs> so you needed to know about that, but you didn't need to know it was about religion and his disability. And then you found out all that stuff when you went to find out the first thing. That's a good point. So I guess I said, I mean, I think, yeah. So they said, so they feel like they're part of this they sense of a world where you're going to find everything out about everybody who's looking. Uh, to know about you. Yeah, but the, the concrete example with the Facebook thing that people got annoyed was is Facebook asking you for your password. <laughs> you know? That was the concrete, you know, mm-hmm. that's not cool. In order to know more yeah. about you and who you are. Yeah, well, you know, you don't get to know everything. Right. Today. And there is no mechanism right now. That Facebook doesn't have a mechanism for, you know, potential employee login. <laughs> Do you you still think we're going to have this completely transparent world, or is it just this kind of fantasy we were living with? I think it's it's, going to be difficult. I mean, certainly, you know, one one Facebook example is that um, a lot of 
um, teenagers are creating parallel Facebook identities. So they've got one that's visible to those who um, maybe college admissions officers and says what wonderful upstanding people they are and shows all their, their good works. And then they have another one where they, which um, they talk to their friends on and has, um, is blinded against their name and has some fake name, but they, they all know who it is. Um, and that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's something that's, that's been observed that Dana's talked about this too, as seeing, showing up in her research. Um, and there is a, you know, there is a presumption that you can have more than, more than one, um, one role in a different place. Um, and the way you do that is by segmenting accounts. Um, mm -hmm. So that, you know, there's a tension there between that and then trying to find the accounts back together again for meaning. This is something that mm. um, Kalia has been talking about yep. as part of the, this is all the identity, the, the identity standard stuff, standard, is, is right. to say... We uh, could have a know, whole show on that, which we should. Which we should, yeah. When, when you bind two things together, is the, the act of binding it an invasion of privacy? Is, 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 is connecting your Pinterest right. account to your LinkedIn account... I've talked about this with, with them. Maybe she'll come on the show with Esther Dyson about this. You know, it's not the fact that all this data is out there. It's the fact that someone bigger than me has the bandwidth or the technical chops to take all my little breadcrumbs around the Internet and, and, make, correlate, and, them. and correlate them and make some sort of narrative that I'm not in control of. Um, is, so. Can someone else create uh, the reality of you? Right. Right. And that's what we're going to be wrestling more and more with. You. I mean, Daisy right. probably would say when you're in one of these, one of these media storms, you probably feel like, oh my God, it's right. not really me out there. All these people are deciding to create people yes. who I am, and I'm not that person at all. I'm a lot of I didn't people. say that. They said I said this. I didn't feel this. Well, now they're all living more publicly, like yeah. you said. Uh, your average Joe is facing stuff that only famous, in quotes, people used to face, right? Yes. And that's... And that's the issue, and therein lies the rub, I guess. But also learning to navigate that as well, and right? And learning to na and learning to navigate and do. But we all, but we also don't have people. I mean, if people are using that information in daily life stuff, right? If we're looking for jobs mm -hmm. and things like, when it happens to a quote unquote famous person, when a story hits, for better or worse, I'm not saying you have staffs of researchers and other people who are going to go research all of this and fact check this way or that way, that's how the whole Mike Daisy story broke, which is true, which isn't true, and create something about it. Unfortunately, you're probably not going to have that luxury when you're looking for a job or going out on a date or right. something else. You're not going to have people who are going to take the time or be able to, the way the our social platforms exist today, to do that research. Why are we going to have businesses that do that? Well, but, but, well but, that's what we're saying, but with, like, with, the employee, with the employer thing. Right, so but I would say that people will have their own, just like maybe there are companies that help you fix your credit report. Oh, there are, yeah. There yeah. are. That's, yeah. that's, that's what the identity community is working on, that you are in control and you have your own identity. But, but there are also companies that, that will wheel fix your reputation online. Oh, yeah. reputation.com yes, and social intelligence. Yeah, right. it's starting to exist. But, but, but the, I mean, the other thing you were saying about like, you know, the background checking stuff that employers do, um, that as you say, is held at arm's length. And it's like we go and ask, you know, it's like having a credit rating agency. It's like, so we, we will ask this third party to to give you something because we cannot, you know, we're, we're wary of that that um, being held against us. And I think the fact that they're doing that is encouraging. I mean, so um, something, something JP says about this that that was interesting, sort of struck me about it, which says, um, with financial systems, it's not knowing something that is, um, illegal it's acting on it um insider trading is is acting on knowledge that you have that um 
that Ugly wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may that may end up being the standard of law in this as well. Um, you, it may be, you, know, you may be able to data mine a bunch of interesting stuff out of people's social profiles, but if you act on that, then that would be the act of discrimination that, that you could then be held against in the same way that if you discriminate someone for, it was for, being, for being, being gay or black or whatever. Yeah, mm. you have to be able to prove those things. Right, right, right. Yeah, which is, which is still, yeah. Good times. <laughs> good, good, good times. Oh, well, God. this We're, has been, we've been on for a while, though we started late, Dave Dark's technical fabulousness. Um, it was great to have, you know, Amber here again. Patterson is back, and Myers, Svenport, I know where you're at. Thanks for joining us. Ben Word has a lot of really interesting uh, insights about uh, what's going on here. Um, I feel like the end of Romper Room when I do this. I love <laughs> that. That's the best. That was no the best part of Romper Sorry. Room. You waited to have them mention your name. It depends on what kind of name you have. Well, they they mentioned mine, but they were never talking about I'm me. I'm sure they mentioned Debbie? your name. They certainly Debbie. never mentioned my name. They didn't mention Heather? It was it that unique a name? Heather wasn't that popular. Not yeah. then. It got the popular 70s? later. A little bit later. As an early adopter. <laughs> oh no, I was not. <laughs> my parents Madison weren't, wave. at least. But that's because my parents had, my mom grew up with a very unique name, so she that went meant, the other direction. That meant that if you were on vacation, you could get the pretend license plate. I could never, I know. It. There were lots of them. Not only that, I used to be able to draw out my name on punch cards Deb, or calculators upside down. You can draw Debbie on a calculator. Yeah. That's how geeky I was as a kid. Wow. You heard it here first. If you're lucky enough to be called Debbie, you can type People your name out on a calculator, pu- calculator or punch cards. Forget <laughs> 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 punch cards. My Barbies used to sleep in right. punch card boxes. So we'll be back. You can tweet that. We'll be back next week. We'll be uh, booking a bunch of people up. We have Kia Star coming next month. We're going to try it'll be here. We don't have the exact date, but we'll let you guys know that soon. Send us names. You know, just send. let us know on Twitter who you'd like to have on or... Just, We'd like to be getting a technology solution where we could have a whole bunch of you call and converse that way. Uh, so let us know, or if someone here has a relationship to go to, or some other kind of webinar server that wants to sponsor us, then we could have even more people in the conversation faster, which would be great. Um, anything you want to let people know about, Deb? Uh, not at the moment. Um, I'm doing some speaking, but unfortunately, they're all corporate gigs. They're internal, and um, you can't go, and, and none of you can attend because <laughs> they're hierarchical and behind closed doors. But they help me pay the rent. Um, and uh, looking forward to some sun in spring and getting some great guests in our hundredth episode. And we're really excited about what's coming up. So spread the word. Yeah, please go to iTunes and review the show. Please let people know about that and subscribe. We would really appreciate that. Kevin, what's going on with you? Any exciting, world-dominating things coming from you and your world-dominating employer? Um, not world-dominating. <laughs> not, 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 not directly coming up. Um, one thing I would mention was is Insight Identity Workshop. Um, if you are thinking oh, right. about personal identity and this stuff, that's that's the first um, of May, I think it is um, yes. coming up. I really reckon if you care about this identity stuff, that's where, a good place to be. Where it's, is it? It's in Mountain View. And uh, there's a wear camp in San there. Francisco on Sunday, Sunday. Yes, on Sunday, right? And the, the wear conference case. I forget what episode. We get just know people's episodes. I know we should have a cheat sheet in front of us. She'll be here for that. I'm pretty sure. Um, I have a lot coming I'm up because I'm starting to perform a lot again, and Yay. I'm working. I'm already recording interviews for my new podcast, Subvert with Heather Gold, 
which will be breaking the surface and very, you know, creatively and emotionally engaging about what goes into creative life and really unique and interesting um, work. And that isn't just from, you know, a lot, it's from a lot of people you might not hear about in the right, my first episode was recorded with Justin Vaughn, who's maybe the premier performance artist in the country, an incredible cabaret artist. I've recorded interviews with JP, Baron Swami, with, um, I'll be doing Melissa Jerry Grant tomorrow, uh, an ex-sex worker and writer who's done a lot of things online, uh, but not just geeks. Uh, we'll be doing TV in Kansas, Missouri. No, I mean, Cody Critchlow, Shun is an amazing artist. I think one of the most incredible video and live performance artists in the country right now. So a lot of really cutting-edge performers, but a lot of um, learning about what didn't work in their lives or what was hard to do and how. The stuff underneath, not just accomplishment talk. Here's here's my tagline on Heather's new new talk show and she hasn't heard this yet, but I just I just thought of it. Dum dum. If you crave serendipity and you miss the serendipity of the web, you have to listen to Heather's video interviews. It'll definitely be like the unexpected. That's be, what the best part is. That'll be cool. So there's that that I'll be doing one of those live on the 20th of uh, April in San Francisco at the garage. That'll go up soon on my site, heathergold.com. Uh, there'll be tickets for that. That's off the grid with a couple of people who were raised not being schooled regularly and are really, really unique, creative uh, people. So there's that. I've, I've got stand-up coming up next month. Just check my calendar. There'll be a lot of dates up there. I'll be performing in Toronto in June. I mean, just lots coming. And, and looking still for a producer both here and for Subvert. So if you know any radio producers, radio editors, um, people who want to do audio work, get in touch with us. That's our very long wrap-up. Uh, we're really happy to be back and to see each other. It's been good to be with you guys. The snack here again. And uh, maybe I'll leave you with some chip eating or some carrot eating. <laughs> <laughs> no, chip, chip, chip. Chips? Am I, are we eating all the chips? We've really been kind of quiet about eating these chips. Wow, wow. you ate three bags you of three chips? Three chips on there. I ate three cups, yeah. I think that's helpful. <laughs> and, and we should just you know keep crunching and then when Kevin edits, you can like. Tumble out. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye.